Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss the latest themes and events shaping rate markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Rate Specialists, John Briggs, Giles Gale and Theo Chapsalis. Before getting into the discussion today, I just wanted to quickly remind you to hit the subscribe button so you can listen to all our latest episodes as soon as they become available. And another thing I wanted to highlight today was that we've been getting a few questions from listeners for me to ask to our Bondcasters, so I just wanted to flag that if you had any questions that you wanted me to pose to our specialists, um, you can either get in touch directly if you have our email or through Bloomberg or you can email our Bondcast um, mailbox directly at bondcast at natwestmarkets.com. All right, Bondcasters, so a very busy day today and actually a very busy week for what we thought would be quite quiet as we waited um, for the US inflation print and the ECB meeting today. We're recording this on Thursday, but we've actually seen some pretty big market moves. So let's get straight into it. I'm going to start with the US because I think the inflation print is maybe slightly more interesting actually than than the ECB meeting that we had in the end. So, John, uh, another kind of beat to uh, inflation expectations. The month-on-month number was slightly higher, but I guess the year-on-year number was really what's going to be grabbing people's attention is that was all the way up at 5%, which is, I don't know how many years of a record high that is. Um, How, you know, how can we still call this? Is this still transitory? How will the Fed be thinking about this? Tell us your latest thoughts on that. Well, the answer to your question is highest since 92, I believe. Um, and, you know, older than me. <laughs> no comment. And just as uh, as important, the, the core reading on the year over year was at 3.8. So, you know, again, the Fed has got a 2% target. That's for core PCE. And there's a wedge between the two. But, you know, you're clearly well above 3% here. And, and here's the thing about the transitory. I think the Fed is going to be able to continue to use that transitory language for now. Um, it's really just two prints. We knew there was going to be base effects. Yes, these last two prints are very much stronger than expected. And, and you know, we do have higher inflation going down the road, which will pose a challenge for them. But for next week's meeting, you know, I do expect it to be transitory. Even if you look at the market reaction, you know, we had yields rise, um, the curve steepened a bit, but we're taking some of that back as, you know, economists and pundits, you know, Say, look at the numbers and look at transitory factors. You know, moving services was a big surge, but we had that last year when there was a reopening and that that dissipated over time. So, you know, again, I think that for the meeting next week, they'll be able to keep the transitory language. I do think that Powell will get pressed on it a little bit more in the press conference. So his tone around it is going to be interesting. We flagged that the Fed speakers, including governors, have become more nuanced in their message around inflation. They become much more balanced. The risks are balanced, the outlook, as opposed to only focusing on the unemployment side of the mandate. So I do think that, you know, he is going to be a little bit more balanced, which could be seen as slightly hawkish. But, you know, within this context, we're talking about an institution that on a scale of one to 10 is like a 10 on the dovish scale. And maybe they're just moving a little bit towards nine. Um, Lastly, just on staying on the inflation topic, though, if we continue to get these prints, you know, if, if we have another print coming next month that is above expectations, and as you head towards the back half of the year where, you know, our forecasts are for readings not too far from, from here in the fourth quarter, uh, a little bit lower, but in the fourth quarter, first quarter, the further you get along in this, the harder it is for the Fed to kind of keep saying it's transitory, A, and B, the harder it'll, the more the market might actually challenge that narrative. At the same time, that might give them a good timing to start moving up the tapering discussion if we head in towards the summer and you have those higher prints. I guess in some ways, last week's 
um, slightly weaker than expectations um, MFP print kind of helps the Fed well, I guess in terms of their dual mandate, argue that actually employment's not back to where where it should be either. And, you know, they, for some time they've been placing a lot more weight on the employment side of their mandate. So if they can still, at least for this month, argue, you know, inflation, inflationary pressures are transitory and employment's still not there, it allows them to stay still pretty dovish. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the labor market side continues to be, you know, in our view, and I think pretty much across consensus, you know, um, a supply issue. You know, every conversation you have, at least in my area, whether it's, you know, the restaurants or, um, you know, nor the, the department stores or, you know, nobody can seem to find workers, even some are like teen workers that tend to, you know, pick up a lot of the seasonal stuff. There's a lot of shortages there, too. So we started to see some of the states, I think about half the states are cutting the extended unemployment benefits um, in the next month or two, which is before the September end for uh, the federal side. Now, to be fair, those are a lot of Republican states. So it's not 25% of the population that is, we're seeing that cut, but you know, half the, about half the states are actually seeing. So we should see, if you believe that the extended benefits are keeping workers on the sideline, I think it's a combination of that, still worries about COVID, daycare issues, summer camps, you know, like schooling. There's a lot of kind of issues in there, but if you believe that that is one of the reasons, then you should start to see some of that supply ease and we could see better payroll numbers ahead. Um, but again, I think that you know the really tricky side for them, we kind of understand where we are when it comes to unemployment. We know what the Fed's looking at. What's new is flexible average inflation targeting. And this is the tricky part where they're coming into the execution of it. Can they give us just a bit more inflation, but not too much? How are they going to communicate that? How is the market going to react if we think that their over their inflation might overreach with that little bit? You know, we want little eye inflation, but not big eye inflation. So, you know, it is going to be, I think. The, the narrative is going to shift more around the inflation side than the labor market side, unless you have low um, employment numbers really into the fall. And I guess the, the other thing, again, I guess about this week is that we saw quite big market moves heading into this print. I mean, bigger than perhaps we might have been expecting, not just in the U.S., but globally, we've had quite a strong fixed income rally. How are you thinking about that? Do you think that that really was just people taking chips off the table ahead of the print? People weren't wanting to run a huge amount of risk into that, or is that people kind of setting themselves up for the summer and, and their expectations for, for the Fed over the next few months? Yeah, I mean, it's probably a couple of things. And I'll be honest, I, I thought that the market would be more defensive into inflation, just worried about stronger prints than not. So I was, you know, this the, the rally over the last few days certainly surprised me. Um, which maybe it shouldn't have because last week we actually were doing a piece looking at demand from all sorts of sectors and investor types from banks to foreign to, uh, you know, pension, potential pension buying of long P's as, as their funding ratios are in much better shape and they're locking that in to, you know, pick, you pick your asset, pick your investor and, and retail. Everybody was kind of has been buying. So there's been strong demand um, across the board. And I know we, you know, we have been aware or cognizant that there was probably some shorts from our leverage account base, but it really did seem like this was more broad brush buying um, that took 10-year yields down to one and a half. You know, we still see, um, you know, yields kind of drifting higher and we do see kind of flatter curves, fives, tens, fives, thirties. So, you know, that was a mixed bag as far as our views went. Um, but I think to your point, there's probably an argument there that, you know, 
if, if we think that it's going to take a couple months or, you know, at least maybe you have to wait till the next inflation report or, you know, on the, the payroll report wasn't quite as strong as people were hoping. And that you just don't want to bleed that negative carry by being short. So there's, there's a strong argument there that in addition just to the technical demand that if you believe for higher rates, you're going to fight this carry for another four to six weeks. Let's just clean up and, you know, we'll, we'll fight another day, I suppose. You know, sometimes the best position is no position. So I think it's a combination of all those factors. Okay, that makes sense. So switching over to Europe then, because that's where we also saw a, a strong fixed income rally into another risk event this week, which was the ECB. Um, as it happened, I think it was a relatively boring ECB meeting. It felt like they'd kind of delivered their um, uh, policy changes or delivered what they wanted, the message they wanted to actually in the weeks leading up to the meeting. So do you think this week's shift in yields, Giles, was about just a repricing of expectations for the ECB or again, was that something more and, and uh, people kind of looking ahead to, to what they expect to happen over the summer? Right. Well, I think I completely agree with what John's just said. Uh, you know, we've had a sort of three-week, maybe even sort of four-week period where I think that expectations slowly and then quite quickly converged on what was actually delivered, which was, you know, to the dovish side of absolutely nothing. And let's face it, nobody can deliver a tedious press conference like Christine Lagarde. Um, so what have we got? I mean, I, I think, yeah, it was exactly what you just been saying that it, it wasn't just about expectations that this particular meeting was going to be a little bit of a I guess damp squib but but the you know, the I guess increasing certainty that actually we were probably entering a longer period where you know it was going to be a little bit harder to see how easy it was going to you know what, what the triggers that you were hoping were going to be for you know your views to, to play out. And so you know, I think it was yeah, a month of position squaring. And I think over the last couple of days in particular, that accelerated quite significantly. And um, so I, I would expect that things are probably actually better set up for the base case of sort of lowish volatility for, for weeks to come. I mean, of course, you know, we can come back to this in, in future weeks, perhaps, but I think it's probably unlikely that <laughs> this summer will be as low volatility as um, as people always seem to be lulled into expecting, but that's perhaps a different story. Okay, let's just touch a bit more closely on the ECB. I know it was quite boring, but <laughs> do, does this mean now that we are um, just kind of waiting for September? Are we going to expect any big policy changes come September then? Or is this really their stance until perhaps even March next year when, when it's the end of the PAP programme or the planned end, should I say? Well, that was, that was the, the debate, as you know, that we were having as the press conference was, was proceeding. And you know, there was plenty of time for us to have those debates because there wasn't a lot that we were getting from Mr. Ms. Lagarde's answers, was there? Right. I mean, I think, you know, basically, clearly, we're not going to get any change before September. And I guess that the question is whether we get one in September. I, you know, I would say that the the likelihood is increasingly that we don't, because, of course, the ECB meeting, uh, where they you know, the policy setting meeting is at the beginning of September, uh, I think it's the ninth. And then the, the Sintra conference, which 
I, I think that we assume is the most likely point for delivery of the main conclusions from the strategy review is going to be at the end of September. And so it sort of seems at this point, like unless, unless things really are significantly to the strong side of, of expectations, you know, within the realm of possibilities, but you know, to the strong side of his possibilities, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a strong call for them to change anything in September. Much more likely they go through the whole process of their strategy review and maybe change things in October um, or even later. So with the ECB, I guess, and what we're calling vol control mode and then uh, pretty low net supply over the summer, still quite high you know, purchases from the ECB, where does that leave a sort of bearish fund view? Do, do you see... Uh, a kind of lid on how how much higher yields can go over a low volatility summer or do you think that actually they can continue their kind of gradual grind tighten up with that ecb meeting behind us it's harder to see isn't it um and of course yeah you know, I, I, th I think it comes down to well you know it, come, it comes down to how some of the macro questions that are very much up in the air appear to be resolving over that period. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I was saying that I think it's too too early to just you know, blithely assume that volatility is going to be low because there are these you know, significant questions out there um, you know, about the, the risks on both sides, which to, to a certain extent will start to be, you know, will, will continue to be resolved over, uh, over the coming months. So I would say, no, from where we are, we are we are clearly still bearish. I, you know, I don't I don't think that there's a strong you know, there's a good case really for us to to be talking about a new lower range in yields. Nonetheless, I would describe my level of conviction now at you know something like a three out of ten. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> it's rarely been lower this year. I would say. Right. <laughs> I won't push you any more on that, but I'm sure it's something that we will come back to over quite the summer months. So, Theo, then, over to the UK, somewhere where I think we have higher conviction in the bearish view, but also mm -hmm. um, somewhere where we're probably, well, maybe you can tell me, but not going to touch on central banks this week, given that we've still got a couple of weeks to go before um, the Bank of England. But what's been more interesting in the UK this week, I think, is the dynamics at the long end of the curve. And since we last uh, recorded this podcast last week, you've updated your view um, around where you prefer to hold your shorts on the curve. So you, you now prefer being short the kind of ultra long end of the curve. Um, can you talk us through that and, and what the rationale is there? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um... The, the, the bearish view will have to be uh, nuanced. And one, one key point that we made last week was that, uh, you know, uh, the bearish cap starts to feel a bit uh, consensual, in which case we need to, uh, to be careful exactly where we implement our shorts. And yes, indeed, our favorite short is now at the very end of the curve. So we talk about 50-year guild. Um, the reason is really that, well, we'll get at some point later this year curve extension. We know that from the issuance point of view, we have a shift and the DMO wants to deliver more longer dated uh, conventionals and linkers. We know also that 
in an environment, in a market, which, uh, well, indirectly in will describe just a bit boring and a bit dull and a bit non-volatile, that is the environment where those ultra-long guilds uh, do underperform. And the reason is really because of convexity. So you buy them usually to earn that juicy convexity uh, in case of, you know, of gap risk. But if you don't have the gap risk, if you don't have that big volatility, then the reason really to hold them is getting, um, is getting weaker. So yes, um, we think that the very end of the curve is vulnerable to a correction. Uh, we think that uh, there, there has been some pullback uh, across yields this week. This is really made in, um, I would call it made abroad. I would not show, well, you, 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 I, I think to, to a large extent, this is really a US-led move. And you can say to some extent also Europe, but it's, it's mostly the US. And then everything mar- is being marked on the, on the back of that. I think that it, this is still an opportunity. And fundamentally, nothing really has changed in the UK. So that very end of the curve to us looks very expensive. The other point that I would, I would say is that if you think about it, for a long while, that part of the curve has been supported by QE, but also a theme going forward in, in, in different markets, uh, but, but especially in the UK, is the reduction in the pace. And this is, this is important. If you don't have that additional buyer who steps in every Tuesday and just buys those ultra long, then uh, obviously you need to price different dynamics, especially if issuance has gone from um, from having one auction every quarter to having one ultra long auction every quarter to having one ultra long auction every single month. So this is really why I think there is a stronger case for ultra longs uh, to cheapen, and this is probably a better way than you know just being short ten year gilts. Um, what about the linker side, then? So I guess you're referring to nominals there, but what about the long end of the linker curve? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that this year will be remembered as a year that made inflation interesting, and for the different reasons why the, it was the case in the past. So yes, I hope that uh, it is others that it is not just me who finds it an interesting market. So usually, inflation was getting interesting in 2016 because of a break-even collapse, and then you know we had something similar in, uh, in 2018 and 90, and usually you get, you know, you get a different price action. Um, but right now it's, it's really the opposite. So what we have is a market where in general, inflation linked assets have appreciated. This is something that you can see across different markets. Uh, the UK, the, the long end of the UK, um, when you compare that to, for example, when you compare ultra longs in, in, in the UK to longs, you can see that there's been a particular strength of ultra long yields where the market just wants duration. And if the DMO uh, has been slow, well, this is where the market takes valuations so rich. So ultra long guilds are expensive relative to long guilds. So say 50s are expensive relative to 30s. And 30 year guilds are actually, the inflation link are actually expensive relative to the conventional. In fact, they are so expensive that the market seems to have forgotten that from 2030 and onwards, there's going to be an RPI reform. So right now we have break-evens that challenge levels that we had in the past. And there is like an 80 basis point change in the long run that will be affected from 2030. So uh, this at least should matter. Uh, yet valuations have squeezed quite expensive, which uh, again, it makes a, a stronger case to be underweight or also ultra-long linkers in the UK. 
can see it has turned very interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure we will remember this year as the year that turned inflation interesting. Now, I said at the beginning of the podcast that we've been getting some questions from listeners, so I'm now going to start introducing that as a feature. Uh, and Giles, you're the lucky recipient of today's first question. Um, quite topical, actually, this week, because uh, it's not something we've discussed a huge amount uh, well, recently, I don't think on this podcast, obviously, it's something we, we have talked about a lot over the past year is NGEU. Now, this week, we had the uh, investor call, um, which didn't give us a whole lot of new information. But we do know that the uh, first RFP has been sent to banks um, for the first issuance or the first indication, which we're expecting next week. So now is probably a good time to ask this question, which is around um, the pay and close that we're expecting to see off the back of that. It was a story that we've been talking about for quite a long time before now, and, and um, it didn't garner that much attention. I think most people thought that, that this wasn't going to be the case. So um, the question that I've received is just around, do we think that we are going to see pay and close off the back of this? And is this something that starts this year, um, kind of with the beginning of issuance, or is it kind of more of a 2022 story? Gosh, I thought I was off the hook for the rest of the, <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> um, okay, so NGEU. Um, well, okay, so that's right. We did we did think that, well, we highlighted that uh, the... the I mean, such a big new program might require these kinds of attendant possibilities. And, you know, it seems like we may have been, well, we've been vindicated to a certain extent. I mean, you know, compared to expectations previously, where which were basically that the EU doesn't do swaps, never has done swaps and won't do swaps, we now know that they will. So the big question is how they're going to use them. And... You know, I mean, there are lots of different ways. I mean, I think that the market consensus, to the extent that there is a consensus, is firmly that they will use them in a sort of fairly light touch way just to sort of you know, manage their short term asset liability mismatches and, and so on. Um, <clears throat> I think it's interesting just to note that this week we, we also had a 10 year a 10 year uh, syndication from Greece and Greece is the poster child for uh, the potential you know, beneficial effects of, of rate locking. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I think that there's a strong argument for it, but you know, listen, honestly, we're not going to know the answer to how they are going to use this. And I mean, they may put, you know, in all likelihood, they don't really have um, a firm strategy, uh, no idea about how this might be used at this point either. Now, I think that this potentially could be this year, but it would be later this year in my, in my opinion. So it's one just to monitor. Certainly a theme to monitor then, Giles. Thank you for that answer to that question. Um, so I think that's all we've really got time for today. Thank you all for joining me again. And just a reminder to our listeners that if you did like today's episode, then please hit the like button to show your appreciation. And don't forget to subscribe so you can get our latest episodes as soon as we release them. Uh, and just a final reminder from me that if you do have any questions that you would like me to ask our market specialists, uh, preferably to do with markets, but you know, feel free to send them what you like. Um, you can get in touch with us, either reach out to us directly if, if you have any of our contact details, or you can email our mailbox, that's bondcast at natwest.com. Thank you everyone, chat next week.